0: Now I'm a clinical mental health provider, and uh, so I like to talk about the intersection of religion, spirituality, faith, and mental health. So thank you for joining me today. Today we're going to talk about, I'm going to share <clears throat> part of my personal journey that I've shared before, but uh, just something I've been thinking about the last few days, uh, what for me definitely turned out to be the most toxic element of My Christian faith, my religious experience, and for those of you that are deconstructing, for those of you that are asking questions, and maybe more importantly, those of you that are looking to heal from religious trauma. Well, Maybe you don't even realize that you need to heal, or you know you need to heal, but you don't realize that at the root of some of your pain, at the core of a lot of your pain, particularly if you were really devoted if you were a true believer, um, then we're going to talk about an element that's probably at the core of your mental and emotional pain, but you may have not thought about it or you may have not realized it. And uh, so I'm just going to begin by sharing my story. So uh th- there were really uh, probably three or four key elements that got me from where I was Seven years ago to where I'm at today. <clears throat> and, uh, if, if the me seven years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if that version of myself could have seen this version of myself, I wouldn't have believed it. If somebody would have told me, I wouldn't have believed it because I was, uh, as sincere. I was as devoted. I was as, uh, committed. I mean, I put everything into not just trying to live my faith, but I put everything into trying to help others live my faith as well. Obviously as a pastor, as a minister and as a leader. And of those, you know, three or four key elements, I would say, um, there were two experiences, that, two of them were experiences. In other words, they happened at very specific moments in time. One I shared a couple of weeks ago, and that was an experience that I had in meditation that opened up my eyes to a lot of the problems that I was experiencing, why I didn't feel as emotionally connected or satisfied with what I was doing. <clears throat> and then the second event was uh, happened in therapy, happened when I realized that I had burned out. So in the first event, I realized that I was suffering from burnout and I realized that I needed to make some changes. It was the proverbial midlife crisis. It happened uh, a couple of weeks before my 45th birthday. You have to forgive me, I got a little bit of a frog in my throat this morning. It happened a few days before my 45th birthday and it was profound. And I realized that I was burnt out. And so I needed to go get some therapy. So I start seeing this therapist, and this other thing that happened to me I want to talk about because it will fit with what we're going to discuss today. And also, just by way of introducing the topic and trying to do a good job of that, I uh, have been researching the last month or so to help my clinical clients who are in relationships with narcissistic abusers. I've been researching this topic of narcissistic abuse. So a lot of what I'm going to say is going to relate if you have knowledge or if you've ever been in a relationship with a narcissist or if you've ever been a victim of a narcissist uh, in an intimate relationship or in a family relationship or work relationship. You'll notice a lot of parallels. But let me start with my story. I was I was burnt out, but um, I still didn't really see my faith, my religion as being part of what was burning me out. I just wasn't doing it correctly. And, and this is what we do when we have a core value, a core belief, a philosophy of life, something that we believe is, is helping us and working for us, or in my case, something that we believe is absolutely true. We don't sit back at first and examine the validity of our beliefs or is this actually objectively true is this working for me because we're so enmeshed in the system and the thinking and the philosophy of the system is so embedded into our own thinking that we don't really examine the what or even the why we examine more the how so for me I was burnt out not because of what I was doing, but I was burnt out because of how I was doing it. In other words, it, it, my relationship with God was still there. My basic philosophy of life as a Christian was still there when I realized I was burnt out. The problem wasn't with those things, or so I thought. The problem was with how I was doing them, with how I was applying them. And so there are a lot of people who deconstruct, and I guess maybe, you know, I could subtitle this video, uh, when Deconstruction Doesn't Go Far Enough. That might have been a better title. Uh, when Christian Deconstruction Doesn't Take You Far Enough. And what I mean by that is that when we don't deconstruct to the point that it actually brings healing and wholeness to our life. How do you know when you've deconstructed far enough or you've gone far enough? When it brings a sufficient level of wholeness and a sufficient level of healing into your life. And I had to go further than just looking at the how that I was doing something. But this is how we approach life, especially when we have embedded philosophies, we have presuppositions, things that we believe to be true that seem to us to be so self-evident that we're sort of stuck in our own confirmation biases. We're not really examining that belief system or those philosophies as are they harmful or not. We're just assuming that we're not doing it correctly. So we focus more on the how. So a lot of people will try to solve their problems not by examining the what, what they're doing, what they're believing, but look more at how they're doing it. So finances might be a good example of this, to give you some examples of how we do this. We might have beliefs about how to increase our wealth, Maybe like me, you grew up in a generation where we were still taught that, you know, hard work is the key to all of it and getting a better job. If you want to increase your pay, you need to get a better job or you need to get a promotion. And so we have sort of a system of belief around what it means to make money or to become wealthy or to increase financially. And we don't examine that belief system. We don't examine where it came from. We focus on how we're not doing it well enough or how we're not doing it hard enough or how we could do it better. So essentially what I'm saying is is that sometimes we don't solve our problems because we go at the problem with the same strategy. We go at the problem with the same belief system. And we just try to do it better, or we just try to do it harder, or we try to find a better version of it. So you'll see this with a lot of people. Maybe you'll recognize this in yourself, but you'll notice this with a lot of people in the deconstruction community, that what they do is they uh, talk about things like, I'm going to be religious. uh No, I'm not going to be religious. I'm going to have relationship, but not be religious. I'm going to shift over to grace because if I shift over to grace, then I can find freedom from the legalism bondage that I've been living in. But they keep the basic same template. And so that's what I was doing when I went to therapy. And in this particular therapy session, I was doing a modality. I was working with my therapist, and she was using a modality. She was using a treatment called EMDR, EMDR. Some of you may, if you've gone through any kind of trauma treatment, that's one of the favorites out there. So you may know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, I, I don't want to get into the weeds with it. But what it is, is it is a treatment intervention that works with the brain to unlock traumatic memories and then allow the brain to reprocess those memories. And here's what I mean by reprocessing. When you are traumatized, particularly in childhood, very often, not always, but very often, a part of you gets stuck at that age. So if you get stuck in the memory, the memory imprints you. It imprints your psyche. It becomes part of your core beliefs about life, about yourself, about other people, about how the world works. And so when you have various different types of trauma you can get stuck at that age or you can get stuck in that moment and in that situation that might be a better way to say it so you don't get stuck in the age in the sense that there's a part of you that doesn't grow up that's that's not totally accurate has to be nuanced a little bit you get stuck in the event itself somewhere in the subconscious somewhere in the mind there is a part of you there's a neural network in your brain that's stuck in that moment and Obviously, if you're stuck in that moment, you're going to be stuck at the age you were when that moment happened, and this develops in parts. So we can have parts that move on from trauma, and we can have parts that stay stuck in trauma, and then the brain is seeking to create a whole person, a whole personality, if you will, and these parts are interacting with each other. And so what this process does, what this treatment process does, is it unlocks or it brings up those parts that are stuck in those moments, that are stuck in those traumas, and then helps you integrate with the other parts who are older, who maybe have a different perspective, who think differently. And you could say it this way, can think more like an adult's, or can think outside of the trauma and reprocess it so that you think about life, yourself, people, differently than when you were stuck in that moment. And so that's what we mean from a sort of scientific approach or a therapeutic approach to resolving trauma. So I'm doing this EMDR process with my therapist, and somehow the trauma part that gets activated, that begins to come up in my mind, I see an image in my mind of God. Now, not Jesus, but this entity. It was a representation. It was an internal visual representation for the entity that I called God. And, of course, this internal representation had been molded and shaped and formed by my belief in the Bible, by a Christian philosophy, by the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in this case, I'm dealing with more what we would call the Old Testament image of God. But my point is it that there are a bunch of there's a lot of other imagery that comes into our internal representation, our internal map of who we think God is, that is informed by Western culture and then is informed by the faith that we grew up in. But that faith is 2,000 years old, so it's going to be informed by imagery that is outdated. So in our case, when we see God as king, when we see God as ruler, when we see God as the monarch, we are using ancient imagery that doesn't apply to our society today. Now, when we talk about the laws of God and breaking the laws of God, then we are using imagery and metaphor that we relate to today because we still have laws that govern our society. We still have judges. We still have um, a court system that's based on uh, punishment, right? You do something wrong, uh, goes against the laws. You're brought before a judge, and the judge determines your fate. So in this particular representation of God, what I was seeing was was this image of this person internally, That I knew as God. And he's sitting in judgment of me on the throne. And I had the emotions that would go with that. That's a terrifying thing. The Bible even acknowledges that. Hebrews chapter 10 says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Talks about fiery indignation and judgment that awaits us. And so we read those passages and we can't just skip over those. Those those things get into us. Uh, places where you know we shall all give account for the deeds done in the body. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We shall all give account for every idle word that we have spoken. By your words you are condemned. By your words you are justified. And you'll give an account for every idle word that you speak. To point end a man wants to die and then the judgment the entire book of revelation right the the end time prophecy of God coming and uh, all this there's just there's so much judgment 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 about the things that we've done the things that we 've thought the things that we 've said and that's a terrifying thing and so i'm getting this image of that moment and i'm feeling those very very uncomfortable feelings i 'm feeling those very um trying to find the right description a lot of anxiety that's the best way to put it. a lot of anxiety not comfortable squirmy squirmy on the inside and i'm describing this as i'm going through this process with my therapist and she tells me to uh take th- that image that's in my head because she had the benefit of realizing that's just a traumatic image that's just a a trauma part that's being activated she had the Benefit of realizing the map wasn't the territory, that I wasn't dealing with God in reality. I, w- <coughs> I was dealing with my mental map of who I thought God was. And I didn't have that at, at the time. I thought the map was the territory, I thought, or at least I thought the map accurately identified the territory. And so she tells me to curse at this image that is in my mind. Now, if you think the map is the territory in this case, or you think, here's the almighty, the omnipotent, the creator, the everlasting, the eternal, the alpha and the omega. And I don't know, I didn't feel like he was in a very good mood in that moment. (laughs) And if you think you're going to give account for your words and every idle word, certainly you're not going to curse at this image. And so that was terrifying to me. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so she shifted her tactics, and she said, why don't you go up to that image that's in your mind, and just imagine yourself giving that image a big old sloppy kiss. So here's how this stuff works. So I'm like, okay. And then I, I think to myself, this this verse pops into my mind. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And I thought, well, sloppy kiss, that's a loving thing that's in line with the law that's in line with correct behavior that's what i'm supposed to do so that's something i can do cursing adam's not something i can do but giving him a big old sloppy kiss that i can do so i go into my mind and i give this big old sloppy kiss and i wish i could describe what happened in that moment because when i did that it was as though that image completely collapsed in that moment and when that image completely collapsed the entire structure of everything that that image represented, rulership, dominion, judgment, lordship, all of that collapsed with it. And all of a sudden, I came to myself. Remember how I said I was squirmy? I was looking for the right word to say. I was I was anxious. I was fearful. I was squirming on the inside. All of that went away, and it was like I came home into my body, and I came home to myself and my entire being relaxed. And my entire being relaxed so much so that I remember my face relaxing. And I went home that day, and I couldn't believe how, peaceful I felt. I couldn't believe how comfortable I felt in my own skin. But what I really couldn't get over was two things I really couldn't get over was, number one, I couldn't get over that my face had relaxed. And I would look in the mirror and I would just do this kind of stuff and I would compare pictures and photographs from just like a week or two before that. And what we used to call the fruit of the spirit some of you know know about this and appreciate this love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness when i didn't have all that trauma i didn't have all that fear didn't have all that self-examination anymore it was easy for me to be more patient it was easy for me to be more kind it was easy for me to be more loving i was more joyful i was more peaceful And I wasn't having to work at it. All my life, all my Christian life, I had worked at how do I develop? How do I grow the fruit of the Spirit? How do I walk in the Spirit? And I wasn't having to do any of that stuff. And this was on a Monday, so prior to this time, like I said, I was burnt out. I was on edge. I was irritable. I was irritable with my family. I don't think we went through a single day that I didn't snap at somebody. And Monday's a great day, no strife, no not on edge. Tuesday's a great day, Wednesday's a great day, Thursday's a great day, Friday's a great day. By Friday, I'm sitting here realizing I can't believe that my whole problem was not that all the all this traumatic stuff that I thought happened to me, well, it did happen to me when I was a teenager, or um, issues from my childhood or being bullied on the playground or whatever it is that we think causes our insecurities that what had caused my insecurity, what it caused me to not be comfortable in my own skin, what had robbed me of my spontaneity and all that stuff was the core tenets of the religious philosophy that I was following, that it was literally traumatizing and re-traumatizing me. So at some point in my life, I had heard a message or I'd been told or I'd read a passage. I don't know when it happened. I have some ideas, but I don't know exactly when it happened about my relationship to my creator, my relationship to this perfect, omniscient, omnipotent being that we call God. And my relationship with that entity and the fact that there would be judgment, the fact that there would be this high level of accountability and that what I do in this temporal existence and how I handle myself at every stage and phase of my life, even when I'm younger and I don't know better, even when I'm still growing, even if I need to experiment and find out some Things about myself, like there's no freedom to do that because if you're young, that's not an excuse. You're still going to give an account for the deeds and the words that were done. If you're growing, that's not an excuse. You're still going to give an account for the words and the deeds that were done. If you're exploring or experimenting about yourself, particularly when you're younger in areas of sexuality or just pleasure in general, uh, you, 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 you become full of, of if not guilt, if not shame, at least the question is out there. At least the self-doubt is out there. The insecurity is there, right? Because for all these temporal things that you do, if you, you're going to have to give account for all of them. And then your eternal existence is going to be compensated, rewarded or punished, compensated based on how well you did those things from the time you were born right till the time that you died. That's pretty heavy, and that's what I would call and identify and define as the most single most toxic element. It's the core toxicity of Christianity, because without that, you can't have body shaming. Without that, you can't have sexual shaming. Without that, you can't have um, all the other elements that we talk about. And I bring up the body and, and the sexuality piece of it, because I did a survey a few years ago, about what, what has been the most traumatic thing, most traumatizing thing for you in your religious experience? I did this on the religious trauma recovery page on Facebook, the group. And the number one answer surprised me. The number one answer was sexual shame and body shaming. I thought the number one answer would be this, this, this fear of judgment, but I realized that without this to undergird that, there would be no Sexual shaming. There would be no body shaming. See what I'm saying? Especially for women. Women especially go through this. Men do as well, and we need to talk about that more probably, what happens with men, but you get the point. This is, this is the core. This is the most toxic part of it. This is the most toxic piece of it. And at the same time, I'm going to show you in a minute how it's absolutely the foundation of all Christian Faith and expression, regardless of where you land within the Christian tradition. But let me give you an analogy. Let me, I I told you I would bring up narcissism and narcissistic abuse. There's a lot of stuff on the internet that's really good quality. There's, this is kind of a, a trend right now. Particularly on YouTube. I'm amazed at how many views people get talking about their narcissistic partner or about narcissistic abuse. And a lot of the stuff that's out there is anecdotal. It's, uh, And I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying that it's not narcissism itself. Let's say it this way. Narcissism itself is a psychological condition and a clinical diagnosis that has been intensely studied by experts and in research. So it's a very specific clinical diagnosis that is all pervasive and fixed in a person's personality. And so a lot of the information that's out there isn't necessarily based on the clinical diagnosis and isn't necessarily based in the research, oftentimes it's based in people's experiences. And again, you you know me, I mean, if you've watched this any time at all, our experiences make up who we are and they're very valid. I'm just making a, I'm just saying what I want to do is speak from some of the things that I've learned from the research. And I want to connect it with religious trauma and religious abuse because the similarities and the parallels are absolutely fascinating. So the first part of this is that there are two key components of a narcissistic relationship, narcissistic abuser, that I want to talk about. And I'm going to be talking about narcissistic abuse in the context of intimate relationships, what happens with a narcissist and their intimate partner. And there's two or three really key components. The first key component is what they call the shared fantasy, the shared fantasy. So the narcissist is never himself or herself. In fact, the researcher would say there is no self there. And here's what I mean. There is no real, core, authentic, stable self. There is only a self that is invested in a false image. In other words, the narcissist spends all their time, every waking moment, every thought, every breath, into how well is my image doing with other people? Because the narcissist doesn't deal in reality. The narcissist does not deal in reality at all. The narcissist does not deal with you. The narcissist does not relate to you. The narcissist relates to the image that they have of you in their mind. And that's a really important distinction. A really important point to make. They're not relating to you at all. Did the some of the things, the survivors of narcissistic abuse, did this person ever love me? Well, there was no you there to love. (laughs) So I mean, in that sense, the answer is no. It can be nuanced a little bit and say, the narcissist loved the supply, or the narcissist loved the you that they had in their mind, or the narcissist loved the us, the image of the you, the image of the us that they had in their mind, and they did love that, but because they're only dealing with objects and fantasies in their mind, there is no you there from the perspective of the narcissist. there is no you there to love. That's an important point. I want you to I want you to really get that they have an idealized version of you in their head, and they relate to you to try to keep you in that idealized place in the way that you act. Now the narcissist also has an idealized version of themselves. And they're investing everything into this idealized version of themselves. And, and by the way, the narcissist is always the most important, the the image of the narcissist. There is no real thing there. There's just the image. And that image is like an idol. It's, It's very, very close to The story in the Bible, if you remember the story in the Bible of Nebuchadnezzar, who made a a giant statue image of himself, and then he ordered everyone in the entire kingdom to bow down and worship that image of himself. And when those three Hebrew children, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, They refused to bow down, and what happened? What happened to the king? He became enraged because they wouldn't worship and idealize and idolize the false image. And so what does he do? He takes them and he throws them into the fiery furnace, and then there's another image that emerges there. It's a fascinating uh, passage to look at, a story to look at, in how a narcissist behaves. I mean there's there's just so much rich symbolism and stuff in there. Maybe we'll do a whole episode just on that. So but that kind of gives you a picture of the narcissist. The narcissist has this image and they are the ruler of the kingdom. They are the, they are it. That's why it's mostly men in Western cultures that are narcissistic abusers, because this can happen, this can happen with women, but more often than not, it's easier for men to fall into this or women to fall into uh the shared fantasy with the narcissist because they're the head of the household. They're they're the father. They're the husband. They're the um, r- literally the God of what goes on in the relationship and in your life. And you are to be their worshiper. That's that's how it plays out. So there's this. Shared image, this shared exalted image, and then there's this image of the partner or we'll say in this case, the worshiper, the the follower. And the narcissist keeps the worshiper and the follower in line through various different ways and means to the image that's being presented and being projected or to the shared fantasy. That's the word I really, or the phrase I really want you to get, that there's a shared fantasy here. There's the fantasy the narcissist has about himself, the fantasy the narcissist has about their partner, and then in order for an intimate partner to be in that relationship, they have to fully buy into and support and feed the false image or the shared fantasy. Now, in order for that to happen, there are three key maneuvers or stages that happen, maybe four stages, that happen in a relationship between a narcissistic abuser and the victim. And these three stages are, the first one is idealization, idealization, idealization of the partner and idealization of the narcissist. This is what some people refer to as the love bombing stage where you're amazing. The narcissist comes in and knows exactly how to make you feel like you're amazing. You're wonderful. You're gorgeous. You're, I've never met anybody like you before. This is so wonderful. I've never felt these things before. And of course, especially if you didn't get a lot of that in your childhood, uh, the narcissist in the male-female relationship is, well, in either relationship, the narcissist replaces the parent. Um, either becomes the father or the mother or becomes various aspects of both regardless of gender so women and people and men that are most vulnerable to narcissistic abuse are those that have mommy issues and daddy issues and the deeper your mommy issues or daddy issues the more vulnerable and susceptible you are so there's this sort of pouring adoration onto the intimate partner And the intimate partner responds to that with, oh, my God, I feel whole. Oh, my God, I've never felt like this. Finally, somebody's meeting my needs. And so they begin to buy into the exalted, false, fake image of the narcissist. You're wonderful. And this, of course, is what they call narcissistic supply. This is what the narcissist wants. So that's the first stage of narcissistic abuse is idealism or idealizing. Each other. That's what creates the shared fantasy. But eventually, (laughs) that high starts to wear off. Um, In other words, because there is no self with a narcissist, there's only the false self. The false self has to continually be fed by worship and adoration and compliments and encouragement and behaviors. And you can't... um, Uh, because there is no self, there is no core self like most normal people have. That has to constantly be fed, and there's a law of diminishing returns there. So the message from the narcissist is, I want more, 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 more. Well, pretty soon, uh, the poor person over here that's in this relationship I see Daryl Carlson said the first stage of narcissists sound just like the high after salvation when one can't believe how much God loves me. Exactly. That's exactly where I'm going with this. There's that idealization phase. Then, because you can't give enough, you can't worship enough, you can't affirm enough, and it's never enough for the narcissist, which is why they probably always have more than one source of supply. So more, 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 more. Well now pretty soon, this intimate partner, when they can't maintain feeding the false image of the narcissist, the narcissist begins to think, you're not enough. You're not doing enough. You're not doing it well enough. You need to give more and you're not able to give more. So the narcissist then begins to devalue. So now we're into the second phase of or stage of narcissistic abuse, which is devaluation. And this is usually very subtle. A true narcissist is not a necessarily a psychopath. A true narcissist is not necessarily an overt abuser because they're, they're so committed to this. They don't allow themselves those moments of weakness because they know if they go too far physical abuse, they could get into legal trouble. If they go too far with other forms of abuse, they will um, look bad to their flying monkeys because by this time they've already – flying monkey is a term from Wizard of Oz. So the other thing the narcissist does is sets up uh, – where they are superior in every other relationship in your life. So they'll work to have relationships with your kids where they're superior. They'll work to have relationship with your family members where they're superior. And they'll begin these subtle ways of devaluing you. Um, It doesn't matter how they do it. It's the effect that it has on you. You begin to feel stupid. You begin to feel incapable. You begin to feel needy. You begin to feel very afraid. And uh, because the narcissist needs you to know that you need them. So they may um, subtly criticize how you do basic tasks like uh, housework or driving or where you park or how you get from point A to point B. Why'd you go that way? Why'd you park here? Um, all those little subtle sort of comments to make you feel like, oh, yeah, you're right. I can't. I can't drive as well. I can't clean as well. I can't um, whatever it is. You get the picture. It's the devaluing stage. Then they don't want to be with someone that they've devalued because they're too wonderful and good. Like they're too awesome and mighty to be in your presence. So pretty soon it's like, don't, don't you understand how grateful you should be that I'm in your presence? Don't you know how grateful you should be that out of all the six and a half billion people on the planet or eight billion people on the planet, whatever it is now, I picked you? And look at you. Look at you. Maybe you, you gain some weight. You put on some weight. Something about your parents changes. Something happens where you're no longer good enough. And so eventually the narcissist will discard their intimate partner. Now, this can look like... Totally breaking up with the person and sending them away for a new supply that they found. Or if you're married to them, they have to maintain, see, they'll have a certain social image they have to maintain. They have to maintain the image of the perfect marriage. They have to maintain the image of the perfect family, whatever it might be. And so maybe divorce isn't an option. So they will give you the silent treatment. It can be a form of discarding. They will take off for a week. They will, I need to go find myself for a weekend, but they don't do it in such a way that's healthy, like I need some time to myself. I need to invest in myself with the mutual agreement of the partner. No, this is going to be with the discarding. You're the reason I'm this way. You're the reason that I'm acting this way. And you can imagine this is incredibly shocking to the person in the relationship with the narcissist, and any of you that have been there, I know there's a couple of you on that have been there, you can relate to this. So those are the three phases, idealization, devaluation, and discard. Now let's turn it around. Daryl was already kind of going there, but let's turn it around and let's put it in the context of religion. The idealization phase. Jesus loves you. Um, God is omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. God will take care of you. God will bless you. Boy, were we good at this. Like, we put this face on God. Like, you know, you, how are you doing today? I'm blessed. How are you, sister? I'm blessed. Um, You know, the, the the hallelujah part. And so a new person comes into that, and they're like, oh, my goodness, you know, there's there's a God that will save me. There's a God that will deliver me. There's a God that will heal me. There's a God that will bless me and prosper me. There's a God that will be with me. There's a God that will heal my broken heart. There's a God that loves me. Yeah. And all you have to do is give yourself to this person we call Jesus, give yourself to this person that we call God, and all will be yours, including eternal life. And so there's this sort of high, this sort of, uh, the new convert high, right? It's almost identical to the idealization process In the narcissistic cycle and relationship. But then there's also this devaluing stage. Now, remember, I said the narcissist doesn't see you. They see an idealized version of you. I'm going to come back to that again, but I want to keep reminding you of that because I want this to really come together for some of you. The narcissist doesn't see you, the partner or the victim. The narcissist sees the idealized version of you. And when you don't match up to the idealized version of the narcissist that he has in his mind of you, then you begin to become devalued. When you do not uphold and invest in the perfect image that the narcissist has created and put out there, they will begin to devalue you. So we also go through this phase, and this is what this phase looks like. Everyone is a sinner. Um, <clears throat> everyone is a sinner. Uh you can't you can't live up to the perfect life. This is the Ray Comfort. I don't know if you know who Ray Comfort is, don't don't look him up. But he does this form of evangelism where he goes out on the street and he tells people uh why should God let you into heaven? Well, because I think I'm a good person, I'm a moral person. Oh, you think you're a good person, a moral person? Uh, have you ever told a lie? Even a, a white lie, you know, told somebody they look nice when you really didn't think they look nice? Well, yeah. Have you ever, uh, committed adultery? No, I've never committed adultery. Well, have you ever looked at a member, uh, I'm sure he'd say the opposite sex, uh, member of the opposite sex and lusted after them in your heart, and wanted to have sex with them. Yes. Well, Jesus said, if you do that, you've already committed adultery. And so then he gets him to this point where it's like, so you are a liar. You are an adulterer. You are, uh, if you've, if you've ever, you know, been angry with someone without a cause, you've murdered them in your heart. He basically comes down and convicts him of every single, breaking every single one. Of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) So there's this element of devaluing, right? Now, even in churches, Word of Faith churches, Grace churches, where they don't focus so much on the behavioral aspects, and they tell you, oh, but God's forgiven you, and it's a free gift, and this is grace, and it comes by God's grace. But listen, doesn't that sound like the narcissist? Isn't that a devaluing thing? Like, oh, I'm so great and you're so not that I'll just have to give to you. You can't do it well enough yourself, so I'll put myself inside of you, the Holy Spirit, to empower you to live it out. You don't park well enough. You don't drive well enough. You don't clean well enough, but I do. So let me, by my grace and by my presence, come in and let me do for you what you can't do for yourself, so that you realize how needy you are for me, so that you realize that I am the vine and you are the branches, and without me you can do nothing, but you can do all things through me who strengthens you. And remember the idealized version of self that I keep saying? God doesn't look at you, brother. Sister, God doesn't look at you. God sees you in the perfect image of his son. God sees you in Christ. So what are we telling people? We're telling people God doesn't deal with the real you. God doesn't deal with the authentic you. Because the authentic you is doesn't measure up to this wonderful God. Can't measure up can never be as wonderful as this God can be, can never be as wonderful as this intimate spiritual partner can be. Jesus comes and says, I'll be your intimate spiritual partner, and I am to be idealized. And then, I won't deal directly with you, because all your righteousness is like filthy rags. But I have this idealized version of you, In my son, I have this idealized version of you in Christ, and that's how I'm going to see you, and that's how I'm going to relate to you. So what I just said is the narcissist never related to you. The narcissist never loved you. The narcissist related to the idealized version or snapshot or picture that they had of you in their mind and in their head. And they did not relate to you. They related to the image. And that's exactly what we teach in grace. That's exactly what we teach in Word of Faith circles. That's exactly what we teach in the in Christ message. God doesn't deal with you. God deals with this idealized, perfected version of you that he has in his own head. You see it? The patterns and the similarities are all there because every single thing about Christianity is built on a spirituality that does this. Watch. The pattern or process for every, every aspect of the Christian faith that I can think of with few fringe exceptions out there begins with the fall of man is fall or I'm sorry. Begins with sin in the garden. So it begins with sin. Then the fall. Then the rest of the gospel message is about redemption or rescuing humanity from the fall. So you can sum up the core, and this is the most poisonous core, this is the most toxic core, this is the most damaging core, and until you examine these embedded beliefs, and until you realize that this philosophy is poisoning your soul and alienating you from yourself, you have not deconstructed far enough, and there is more healing that you can get, but you've got to understand that the spirituality of Christianity in all of its aspects, you cannot self-improve it enough, is the core foundation of it is sin, fall, redemption. That man sinned in the garden, man then put the rest of humanity into a fallen state, which means they cannot come up to God's level. They cannot come up to God's level, and there will always be sin in their life. There will always be imperfection. There will always be something that you're doing wrong. There will always be something. And you got, and so the rest of the story is how does God come in as the great rescuer? How does God come in as great savior and redeem you? And inevitably it involves this. And this is where I'll finish up. Inevitably it involves this. God had to send his son to become a victim. That's how much God loved you. That he became a victim. In order to save you. Now I'll come back and do another video on a different way to look at spirituality. But if your spirituality is based on sinful redemption, you're in a mess. You're in a, you're in a spiritually narcissistic abusive relationship. It has all the same features, all the same structures. And you know what? You feel the same way. You feel insecure. So, person in, that's in a romantic relationship, intimate relationship with a narcissist, they never—they they can't be spontaneous. Because if they're spontaneous, they're going—and by, by spontaneous, what I mean is they can't be playful and fun and funny and uh, make mistakes, laugh at themselves, because that would be not being, not adhering to the false image that would be to challenge the shared fantasy that would be to challenge the shared fantasy yeah Michelle says always having to be vigilant Roger says yes we're judge constant unchangeable screw-ups Gina says this is where deeply internalized self-hatred comes from exactly exactly but I want to I want to hit on what Michelle said here she said Always having to be vigilant, that's the thing. You've got to always be vigilant because if you're not vigilant, you're going to violate the idealized image and you're going to violate the shared fantasy. So you begin to live in a birdcage. You begin to live in a box. You begin to live with constrictions and restrictions. But here's the thing, here's the thing that's so crazy about these kind of relationships is that the entire time that this idealization, devaluing, discarding process is going on, and then if you're in a married relationship, there's a hoovering process where they bring you back in, and it starts all over again. And so you go through the cycle over and over and over and over again. The sad thing about it is this. They've so programmed you. They've so brainwashed you. They've so gotten you by your own volition and thinking and will and Stuff to buy into the shared fantasy that you're self-governing. If the narcissist has to always devalue you and discard you, they're gonna leave you. You wanna know how to get out of a narcissistic relationship? Quit playing that game. (laughs) You know, just don't, don't idealize. Challenge the shared fantasy. All those things. Now, you want to do it safely if you're with somebody that's really abusive. So this is not advice. This is not clinical advice. You should really get into therapy and let someone who can really sit with you and talk with you, who has expertise, uh, work with you on this. But what I'm saying is, is that the narcissist is not going to stay with someone when there is no supply. When there is no supply, they're not going to stay. Now, if they constantly have to remind you, if they constantly have to punish you, if they constantly have to bring you into line, alignment with themselves, that's too exhausting for the narcissist. So the end goal is to get you self-governing. So you do something that you want to do, you're spontaneous, you let out laughter, you're, you're too loud in your sexual expression because you get lost in the ecstasy of it and they look at you and you think, oh, that wasn't proper. I shouldn't have done that. Um, oh, he doesn't like that. I guess I need to do this. I think I'll go out tonight with my friends. Oh, well, I thought I'd just stay here at home. I'll, I'll just, okay, I thought maybe we could hang out. uh You know, I was going to cook your favorite meal tonight, but you'd rather go out with your friends. Oh, no, I didn't. I, no, I, I want to be here with you. I want to stay home with you. You know what? Let me go change. See, because you've become self-governing in your own head. I know many of you can relate to that. Be not, but watch this in Christianity. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Do you see the pattern? You see the pattern? How much teaching in your Christian experience Was on the renewing of the mind. That was a big part of my, what I was taught and how I taught people. (laughs) Unfortunately. And I'm trying to redeem myself. I'm trying to rectify myself with these videos. Watch this. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world because I have an idealized pattern of you in Christ. So don't deviate from that. But stay consistent to it by renewing your mind. And how do I do that? I study scripture. I go to church. I listen to messages. I do praise and worship music until I'm thinking like the book is telling me to think or until I'm thinking like my partner, my spiritual partner is thinking. Then I've renewed my mind. Now I will prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of the narcissist. Anybody that's actually been in a relationship with a narcissistic abuser, you know that you governed your own behaviors by the renewing of your mind. You know that you did not deviate from the pattern because the moment you got a look or the moment you just felt something inside, maybe I shouldn't do that constantly. Being vigilant, constantly second guessing yourself. You had renewed your mind, and what were you doing? What were you doing when you wanted to go out with your friends, or you wanted to wear that dress, or you got too excited in bed, or whatever happened that was unacceptable to the narcissist? What happened? You immediately corrected yourself, and what'd you do? You proved the good, acceptable, and perfect will of the narcissist. It's the same thing, it's the same structure. And it leaves the same damage and ends up with the same results. So back to what happened with me to bring this all together, to bring this back to the beginning. I was in a spiritually toxic relationship with a false image. Now watch this. Watch this. Last thing I want to say because I didn't want to say this. Remember that, and this is I think applies to maybe all Abrahamic religions. Oh, two things. Two more things I want to cover. I don't want to leave these off. Abrahamic religions. What did God ask Abraham to do? God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Here's the crux of it. The inner child, the authentic self. Kyle Butler talks about this all the time on his Facebook page and TikTok. That inner child that I was, I had to sacrifice my inner child to the image, the false image, to the God. I had to sacrifice my inner child. I had to sacrifice my inner child. I had to sacrifice my authentic self. The authentic self dies. The authentic self becomes the victim of the shared fantasy to the false image of the religion. I'm not talking about the narcissist. This happens with the narcissist too. The narcissist becomes God. The authentic self is slave, And we worship and buy into and feed the shared fantasy. But this is also Abrahamic religions. Now, you either sacrifice the inner child, the true child, the true image, the authentic you, the one that needs to grow, the one that needs to experiment, the one that needs to uh, develop, the real you, the one that needs to be expressed and satisfied. And, you know, we tell people, you are so unique, there's never been anybody like you. That's true, but then we forbid you to express the authenticity of who. Who you are, which is why a better form of spirituality starts with creation and blessing rather than with sin and the fall. But like I said, we'll get into that in another video. So we sacrifice the authentic self. We sacrifice the inner child to the false image and call it worship. Now, watch this other piece. So we become the victim because the victim becomes glorified. This is the other aspect of narcissistic abuse is that the narcissist, the false image of the narcissist will take on either the image of the Old Testament God, which I was saying I was dealing with in the beginning of the video, or they will take on the idealized victim, which is Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We are actually taught... That God's love is most like Jesus dying for us on the cross. That the perfect image of God is this idealized version of love. This idealized version of sacrifice. This idealized version of self-sacrifice. God so loved you that he sacrificed himself. Watch this. If you've been in a relationship with a narcissistic person, they love to play the victim. They love to play the idealized victim. They love to be the one who's always suffering. I could have gone out and... And seen the world, but instead I stayed here and I married you. I could, uh, I could be doing things that I enjoy with the family and I could really be here with the family. They don't want to be there with the family. The family is a nuisance to them. The family's gotten old. They want to be out chasing new narcissistic supply. Well, I could be here. I'd be there. I'd be there for this. I'd be there for, for, with you, but I gotta go work. I've gotta put in the extra hours. I gotta put in the extra hours. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this because I love you. You know, I could have married someone so much smarter. I could have married someone so much more beautiful. I could have married someone who did these things so much better, but I just love you. So they play the victim, they play the martyr, the unconditional lover that it's, it's an idealized version that is just as toxic. It's just as toxic because what do you feel? What do you feel? If you buy into that, if you renew your mind to that, what do you feel? Oh, yes. They are so wonderful. And I just wish I could have been what they wanted me to be. And then you get insecure. Oh, my God, I might lose them. They might find that person who's better. See what I'm saying? Think about it. The Old Testament glorifies the conquering king and the control freak. The, oh gosh, Michelle, I just saw your comment come in. I used to hear, you should be thankful at least I don't punch you. Isn't that what God, isn't that the message in the New Testament though? You should be thankful that I suffered all of this for you so that I don't harm you, so that I don't punish you, so that I don't torture you. Right? It's the same thing. It's the same exact thing. But it's to get you to give them that narcissistic narcissistic supply and feed them because they're they were the perfect victim they were the perfect sacrifice they've given up so much for you, all this martyrdom, all this stuff it's not healthy all of it's toxic, so we either land on the legalism side of the track where we are trying to get everybody's behavior to conform to Old Testament standards because God is going to judge you or God is going to punish you or God is displeased with you and you have to obey, 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 obey. Or we fall over on the grace side of things where obedience doesn't matter. Uh, The law doesn't matter. God's not like the God of the Old Testament because God fixed the God of the Old Testament by becoming the victim of this God in your place. So now we have a new shared fantasy. Now we have a new idealized version of the ideal victim, and we identify with that. I don't want to be controlling. I don't want to be selfish. So now we live life without good boundaries. Now we live life as a codependent. Now we think we just let everybody get away with stuff and just keep forgiving them, (laughs) And that's somehow us being great. And so we develop a persecution persecution complex. I'm being persecuted, but I'm doing it for the greater good. Aren't I wonderful? Look at how wonderful I am. I'm out here doing this great work, and I'm being persecuted for it. But I'm the idealized victim. I'm just like Jesus. So many other problems we could get into with this. But coming back to... What happened for me? What happened for me was I left a narcissistic relationship in 2017 in that one therapy session where I let go once and for all of the shared fantasy between me and my spiritual lover. I let go of the shared fantasy between me and my spiritual father, between me and my spiritual judge. And I returned to my inner child. I returned to my authentic self and began to search for a spirituality that can include God, that can include a creator, that can include all the stuff that was healthy or helpful, but has to exist completely outside of the Christian paradigm. So um, I hope this was helpful for you. Uh, I hope this made sense for you. Let me know in the comments if you want. We can talk about this kind of stuff more. I imagine this might have left some of you reeling. I might have touched on some things maybe in your relationships that you didn't know were going on um, or maybe – you're recognizing that there was some validity to some things that I'm saying about the faith and you're going through your own deconstruction struggle. Uh, I want to encourage you to seek out therapeutic help. If you uh, need therapeutic help, you can benefit from therapeutic help, love yourself enough to get the help. Um, <clears throat> and then that's the other thing that the narcissist will use. I don't know why I feel uh, I need to say this, but the narcissist will devalue therapy. They will devalue counseling. And if you go, they will make you feel like you have to go because you're crazy they will make you feel like you have to go because you're broken well of course you have to go and and they'll 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 they will frame therapeutic interventions for yourself and any kind of help that you will seek for yourself they will frame it within the context of the devaluing they won't necessarily tell you you can't go to therapy but they'll, they they certainly don't need it i don't need therapy cuz my perfect image i don't need it and if you need it well i guess so you know i guess if it helps you so say it in that kind of way, it's devaluing. So don't not get it because of the devaluing stage and process. Um, but also, I want to share that um, I'm going to be going forward, uh, have some announcements and stuff in a few weeks, but I have been able to um, – Look at making some changes. I've been saying that we want to, I want to get out here more and do more and create more content and create community. So um, I've definitely been able to work on that and make some changes to where I'm able to cut back my hours uh, in the fall at work um, because of uh, the generous donations of those of you that watch this, follow this. Many of you've uh, given one-time gifts. Many of you have committed to monthly gifts. I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to support our work, uh, there's a PayPal link at the bottom that goes into our nonprofit organization. And um, we're going to be able to really do some pretty cool stuff. It's too early for an announcement, so uh, build some anticipation. But there has progress that has been being made. So those of you that have donated, I want you to know that there's progress. And I want to thank you and let you know how much I appreciate that. So anyway, uh, with that said, I hope you have a wonderful uh, day, evening, night, morning, whatever time it is for you. I hope that you're doing well. And I hope that this video is contributing to your wholeness. Thank you for watching. I'd love to have you subscribe to my YouTube channel, hit the notification button so you know when new content is put out. And I will see you next week.